Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. It is now October of 2022, and this weekend for the Corbett Report flashback, we're going to flashback once again to the archives, specifically to the 2009 data archive, the USB that is now available for purchase from NewWorldNextWeek.com that contains every single article, podcast, video, and interview that I conducted and released on the website in the year 2009, which was an incredibly important year for a number of different reasons. We've already, in recent weeks, looked at a couple of I think very important flashbacks to that time frame, including we saw the interview that I conducted in 2009 with Professor Michelle Chosodowski of the Center for Research on Globalization about the global financial collapse and the fallout from that event that was still taking place and rippling through in that year. An incredibly important event that it, uh, it deserves re re-examining, I think, in light of recent events. But this week, we're going to flash back to another very important 2009 event that I think, unfortunately, has been largely forgotten. And I think there are probably a lot of people in my own audience, even, who do not even know of this event, let alone remember it. So let's rectify that today. And today's flashback is doubly relevant, not only because the issues raised in this flashback episode of the uh, the Corbett Report podcast are still in fact, perhaps more important now than they were 13 years ago, but also because, as you may or may not have heard by now, the frequent Corbett Report guest from back in the day, Dr. Tim Ball, uh, recently passed away. That's right, on September 24th, 2022, Tim Ball passed away. Perhaps not uh, a surprising event. He was 83 years old. Um, He lived a long and very productive life, and the one aspect of that is reflected in the conversations, the many conversations that I had with him. I will be going through uh, in more detail on the Corporate Report podcast proper, uh, doing a a remembrance of Dr. Tim Ball. But he does definitely make an appearance in today's flashback, and for good reason, because he had a lot to say about this issue. What are we talking about today? We are talking about ClimateGate, and people out there, as I say, People who weren't living through it at the time may or may not have a sense of even what ClimateGate is, but probably don't remember the incredible importance of this event at this particular time. To try to set some of the stage of that, let's just take a look at one interesting pronouncement that was being made back in November of 2009 during this critical period right before the release of the ClimateGate emails when Herman von Rompuy was appointed as the president of the Council of the European Union and made a very interesting speech in which he said, quote, We are living through exceptionally difficult times. The financial crisis and its dramatic impact on employment and budgets, the climate crisis which threatens our very survival, a period of anxiety, uncertainty, and lack of confidence... We need a great reset. Oh, sorry, wrong wrong person, wrong year. Yet these problems can be overcome by com- common efforts in and between our countries. 2009 is also the first year of global governance, with the establishment of the G20 in the middle of the financial crisis. The climate conference in Copenhagen is another step towards the global management of our planet. Yeah, did you know global government was announced and launched in 2009? 
Obviously, that was aspirational, but I think there is something to that pronouncement. That wasn't just airy-fairy uh, rhetorical blather. That was that was a pronouncement, and it does actually correspond to a lot of what we have seen develop and coalesce and become rebranded into the Great Reset and everything we see going forward. A lot of the seeds were already there, not only being planted, but being watered and starting to sprout in 2009, those dark seeds of the global governance agenda. And one incredibly important linchpin of that agenda, as I have stressed time and time and time again since the very inception of the Corbett Report, is the climate change scam, which is a scam. And it is unfortunately not just a monetary scam, although it is certainly that. It is much more fundamental to that. It is about the changeover of the economic system of the entire planet, and ultimately the governance system that is predicated upon that, which will be technocracy. If you do not understand that, I would highly suggest going back to some of my fundamental work on that topic over the years, like the How and Why Big Oil documentary, which I think lays out that agenda in its uh, multi, multi-century multi arc. But another important piece of that is what happened and what was converging around the UN FCCC climate change conference in Copenhagen in 2009, where this idea of the coming together for a global agreement, global governance, was very much on the table and ready to go. But then ClimateGate happened. This email leak came out, and suddenly we could read thousands of internal emails among some of these climate scientists, and uh-oh, they were saying some things that sounded a bit naughty, perhaps even criminal. Now, this is the point at which someone, some well-meaning but not particularly bright person might come along and say, climate gate? I don't know what that is. Let me Google it. And they'll type that word into Google and find out, oh, look, the fact checkers have uh, determined that this is fake news or whatever they were calling it back in 2009, because that is exactly what happened. But that, as my audience hopefully understands, is about as reliable as any of the other fake news fact-check debunks we've seen in recent years, which is to say not reliable at all. There is so much more to the ClimateGate story than you're going to read in the debunkings and fact-checkings from the usual Snopes-like entities out there. So let's lay the groundwork for a better understanding of what actually took place in 2009 that is so fundamental to what is happening to this very day, culminating in such things as last year's UNFCCC conference in Glasgow, where we saw G-fans. Remember that? I had a conversation with Whitney Webb about it at the time. I've written about it. There's so much deep history here that really started at this point, and I have an archive that includes the coverage of ClimateGate as it was happening, writing one of the first articles about it at the time because a listener tipped me off about it just hours after it happened, and I I got out there and wrote an article right away. I interviewed Dr. Tim Ball right away. I got videos and articles out. I ran a contest about it. Anyway, there's more to say about ClimateGate, and there was obviously a lot more follow-up, but first, let's watch this flashback video, and then I'll come back at the end to fill in some of the blanks for people who don't know about them. Here's episode 110A of the Corporate Report podcast, released back in December of 2009. You're listening to the Corbett Report. 
CorbettReport.com. Welcome, my friends, to episode 110 of the Corbett Report, Climate Gate. As listeners to last week's episode of the podcast will no doubt remember, this has been declared the year of global governance by the new unelected, unaccountable president of the post-Lisbon EU, Herman Van Rompuy, in his inaugural address to the European Union. One of the key linchpins in the argument that this is the first year of global governance is that, quote, with the establishment of the G20 in the middle of the financial crisis, the climate conference in Copenhagen is another step towards the global management of our planet, end quote. We see this agenda being forwarded and furthered this week, where the World Trade Organization's Director General is also hoping for a global governance based on the EU model. And we see how this agenda of consolidation for the financial oligarchs is being accomplished through international treaties that purport to be helping the poor of the planet and to help fight the war against man-made climate change. And another indication of that, aside from the upcoming Copenhagen conference, was a recent Commonwealth summit. From BBC News, 28th of November 2009, UK and France propose climate fund for poor. Quote, UK PM Gordon Brown and French President Nicolas Sarkozy have proposed a multi-billion dollar fund to help developing nations deal with climate change. Mr. Brown said the $10 billion fund should also be used to help developing nations cut greenhouse gas emissions. Both spoke at the Commonwealth Summit in Trinidad, the last major world forum before the Global Summit on Climate Change in Copenhagen on 7th December. Many Commonwealth members are island states threatened by rising sea levels. Mr. Sarkozy, with UN Chief Ban Ki-moon and Danish Prime Minister Rasmussen, is there to give weight to any climate change statement. The topic was the only issue on the Commonwealth Summit's agenda for the first day. End quote. Indeed, it seems that the entire elite oligarchs' plans at this particular juncture are hinging on these types of international deals, which of course themselves hinge on the theory of man-made climate change. Indeed, it seems that this entire new world order of the financial oligarchs is coming into place and is being shaped by and through this phony man-made climate change scare. And just as the darkest clouds are starting to loom, along comes a miracle. The whole global warming theory may be nothing more than hot air, critics say, as a major UN climate change conference draws near. The debate stems from leaked emails stolen from a research center in Britain, which raised concern over data manipulation. Just under two weeks and counting, 191 countries will head for Denmark to try and reduce greenhouse gases. But a computer hacker has shown that scientists have been pumping out hot air of their own. Thousands of emails from Britain's University of East Anglia, the main source for measuring global temperatures, posted on a Russian internet server and raising serious questions about ethics and accuracy. In these emails, they talk about trying to suppress the real data, and they talk about working with government 
to not release the documents to Freedom of Information Act uh, request. And they also talk about how to persecute scientists and other people and get their funding revoked, get them in trouble, get them kicked out of peer-reviewed journals uh, if they tried to file scientific data that disproved that global warming was indeed happening or that it was man-made. So this is a giant scandal. This is climate gate. Now that climate change theory is in the public domain, the majority of ordinary people don't even think to question it. But in fact, climate observers say average temperatures are no higher than they were in 1998. And they may get cooler, not warmer, in the coming years. And among those convinced of global warming, some dispute just how much humans are to blame. Now indeed the warming is progressing, although not quite as rapidly as it did in the late 19th century, when anthropogenic influence was minimal, if any. Therefore the eternal question is bound to arise. What's the reason? Well, perhaps mankind does contribute somewhat to this warming, but by no means is it the main one. Personally, I'm convinced that we still do not know the answer. Nonetheless, voters are forcing their leaders to act. That's why they're heading to Copenhagen to cut carbon. But for some nations, it could choke their struggling economies. A lot of countries can't afford to commit to any legally binding targets because they need to raise millions and tens of millions of people out of poverty. India, China, they cannot afford to sign up to any such binding targets and therefore Copenhagen will be more or less a um, political agreement but not a legally binding agreement. Is the world getting hotter or is it just the politicians rhetoric and if any targets agreed at Copenhagen are based on flawed research surely it would say more about leaders trying to score popularity points back home rather than saving the planet. Laura Emmett, RT. Yes, that's right. It seems that the scientists who were most intimately connected with the UN's political body, the IPCC, and the research for their reports, which showed that mankind was heating the earth, seems that they were fudging the numbers a little bit and playing with the data and conspiring to make sure that anyone who disagreed with them would never be published and their careers would be ruined. And, oh yes, perhaps illegally deleting emails and information that had been requested by Freedom of Information requests. But other than that, really nothing to see here. Move along. Well, the what we just listened to was a rather fair report from Russia Today. But, of course, you do have to turn to the obscure foreign alternative media to find anything of substance on this because most of the mainstream and corporate controlled and foundation funded media entities either don't want to touch this story with a 10-foot pole or don't want to talk about any of the issues of significance. But let's take back a step back for a second and just start to flesh this out a little bit and get some perspective on what we're talking about. And in order to do that, Let's turn to the article that I wrote as soon as I learned about this story. And this was uh, not last Friday, but the Friday before, the 20th of November 2009, when I was sent an email late at night by a listener in Melbourne, Australia. So to Daniel, a giant tip of my hat, and thank you for bringing this story to my attention. And the story that I immediately wrote upon learning about this was... Climate bombshell, hacker leaks thousands of emails showing conspiracy to hide the real data on man-made climate change. Quote, 
A hacker has leaked thousands of emails and documents from the Climate Research Unit at East Anglia University that appear to show how climate change data was fudged and the peer reviews process skewed to favor the man-made climate change hypothesis. The link to the data appears to have been posted on a number of climate science websites yesterday by an anonymous hacker or an insider going by the name FOIA, an apparent allusion to the Freedom of Information Act in the United States. The information contained in the leaked emails and documents are as shocking as they are damning of the scientists who have been most vocal about the man-made global warming scare. End quote. And I go on in that article to point out a couple of the emails, of course, one being Phil Jones' now infamous comments about Mike's nature trick of substituting real temperatures to hide the decline, and that's become a much debated and much vivisected email by now, and that's the one that the media is mostly focusing on because, of course, it hinges on words like trick and whether that means something deceptive or merely an innovative way of doing something and hiding the decline, which in this case may only be talking about the way dendroclimatology has fallen apart in modern times. And, of course, very few people, including myself, knew anything about dendroclimatology before this scandal really busted its way into the mainstream. But yes, that is the practice of using trees as thermometers, i.e. trees as ways of calculating global climate. Yes, it is a very obscure science, and one that is apparently not without its problems, because although it seems to be a very accurate way of mapping temperatures for hundreds and thousands of years previously, for some reason, since 1961, trees have not acted as good thermometers. And for just no apparent reason, they stubbornly refuse to show that the world is warming catastrophically. So since 1961, we have to discard that tree data, but before that point, we can use it. All very interesting indeed. But disregarding that Phil Jones email about the hide the decline... There are, of course, many, many, many other emails that are very interesting and touch on many key issues to do with the climate change debate generally. And there's a very big difference between what people were saying behind closed doors, so to speak, and what they say in their public positions as men and women who are studying climate science and supposedly representing the facts in their assessments to bodies like the IPCC. So to get an indication of what some of these emails contain, a good master article to go to would be Andrew Bolt's column in the Herald Sun, The Warming Conspiracy's Most Damning Emails. Another great place to find numerous links to a bunch of very good stories on this subject is, of course, MediaMonarchy.com, which just yesterday put up one of the massive data dump articles, which James Evan Pilato is known for, under the headline, ClimateGate Hacked Emails Expose Climate Control Schemes. And a third great place to go with literally dozens upon dozens upon dozens of links to articles and videos on this subject is a master article written by Paul and Steve Watson, Climate Gate for Dummies. 
So I'll put links to all of those up in the documentation list for today's episode. But of course, it's also important to remember that just as amazing and damning as the emails themselves were, so too are the other documents that were contained in this release, including some of the source code which was used to plot the climate models which supposedly tell us that the world is warming catastrophically. And for a start in the really very fascinating programmer's notes that can be found in some of that code, you could turn to What's Up With That for an article from the 22nd of November 2009. CRU emails may be open to interpretation, but commented code by the programmer tells the real story. Now, of course, this is a lot of information to go through, but personally, I found it quite fascinating to, to really get a peek behind the veil at the ways in which this data is being manipulated. And I think it's just very interesting, even for someone who's not personally interested in the topic, it's interesting to see the difference between what scientists are saying in their emails and in their documents versus what the media is portraying on a daily basis about the world coming the ever closer to the brink of climatological collapse. Of course, just given the volume of information that has just been released, it's going to take a long time to parse all of the details about all of the information overload that we're receiving at the moment. But in order to start putting this into some perspective, I turned to a former guest of the Corbett Report, Dr. Tim Ball. In fact, I had a chance to meet Dr. Ball in Victoria earlier this year, and of the hours of conversation that I taped with him, just uh, two two months ago, I was looking for five or six minutes to put up onto YouTube as an extract from that interview, and I happened by chance to alight on a short passage where he's talking about the scandal with Dr. Jones refusing to release and then saying that he didn't have certain data to back up the CRU's claims about global warming. And he was talking about intellectual honesty and the lack thereof displayed by researchers who wanted to hide their data seemingly for no other reason than simply to disallow people who disagreed with them to have anything to really bite on. And that was a very interesting conversation. So I'd highly recommend people go to check that out to, to find out really what this is about and what's at stake with the issues here of scientists hiding data and colluding behind the scenes to stop other scientists from looking into their work. And as Dr. Ball pointed out at the time, and as I think I didn't really appreciate at that point in time, what he was saying is that when scientists do this using the name of science, they are really destroying the name of science. When they are sh shown to be charlatans, they are not just going to go down personally, they're going to take the entire scientific discipline with them. And that's what we see happening right now, as the entire climate science industry is now coming into question. And all of those people who are writing the billions upon billions of dollars in government grants and funding and research that is going on right now have to be really asking themselves whether it was worth being so cliquey and hiding behind their uh, governmental bodies and things like the UK Met Office, which was willing to run cover for them. But at any rate, that's one fascinating way of taking a look at sort of the run-up to this ClimateGate story. But of course, as soon as the ClimateGate story broke, and as soon as I realized just how staggering it was, 
one of the first sources that I decided to turn to was Dr. Tim Ball. And that's so far generated a lot of interest. It's gotten all around the web. It's been viewed almost 80,000 times now. It's even been linked from the Telegraph and other places. So that certainly made the rounds, and I'm glad it did, because it's uh, definitely worth listening to. And in the interest of recording some of the, the best information about ClimateGate here for posterity, I'm going to include the at least some of the audio here from that interview. So let's take a short listen to Dr. Tim Ball talking about this scandal and its implications. Well, the significance is that um, it confirms uh, suspicions that I've had in my 30 years of working on in climate science, that I, I saw uh, the hijacking of climate science, particularly by uh, computer modelers, and then by a small group of people associated with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, but, of course, uh, the difficulty was that even though I sensed that there were these things going on, proving it is extremely difficult. But now, suddenly, with the exposure of these files, it's not only a smoking gun, it's a battery of machine guns that has, that has uh, been exposed. And uh, it, it really is deeply disturbing because what you've got here is confirmation of this small group of scientists who, by the way, Professor Wegman, who was asked to arbitrate in the debate about the hockey stick, um, he identified 42 people and said, look, uh, these people are all publishing together, and they're also uh, re peer-reviewing each other's literature. So there's a classic example of uh, the kind of thing that bothered me. About 20 years ago, uh, I started saying, well, why are they pushing the peer review issue such so big? Why are they saying, well, you haven't published peer review and you haven't done, done this peer review? And now, of course, uh, we realize it's, it's because they had control of their own process. And um, that's clearly exposed in, in, these, um, in these emails. So for me, um, it is just confirmation of, of very deep uh, suspicions I've had. But on a, on a global scale, it's frightening because this group of people not only controlled the Hadley Center, which uh, controls the, um, the data, global data on temperature through the uh, Hadley uh, Climate Research Unit, um, so the, the global temperature record uh, is in their hands, but they also um, control the IPCC. And, um, and so um, they've, they've manipulated that, and we, we read in the emails how that was done. And, um, and, of course, the IPCC has become the basis uh, in all governments for uh, the Kyoto Protocol, the Copenhagen Accord, and so on. That's exactly right. And of course, the, the ramifications of what we're talking about are, are huge. So uh, can you give us an indication of, of some of the, the specifics that you found disturbing about, uh, there are many different issues that were touched on in these emails and documents, but some of them include um, active collusion to avoid uh, releasing information pertaining to freedom of information requests. Some of them pertain to uh, attempts to get James Sayers removed from the editorial board of the Geophysical Review Letters. Uh, many other startling issues. Were there any that stuck out for you? Well, I, I think that the, those are some of them, but uh, of course, one of the first things is the overall tone of, of the emails. 
the nastiness, the viciousness, the uh, the personal comments about people. Um, I mean, I I knew John Daly, uh, who, who passed away a little while ago, and the comment about almost to the to the to the delight that he's gone, and um, those kinds of of things are really deeply disturbing. But but beyond that, um, it's it's the orchestration of of the whole publishing uh, field. And um, there's a couple of things that interest me. For example, uh, the emails between um, Andrew Revkin of the New York Times and these people. So clearly he, was, uh, he got information from them, but was also a conduit for them uh, to push their arguments. But, but it, it's also um, not only the attacks on individual scientists, but the attacks on editors of journals uh, attempting to control that whole journal process. And um, uh, the emails that talk about um, making sure that they they get uh, the right name. So, for example, if if a, a journal requires the editor requires five um, independent names uh, to act as possible review editors, they provide those names, and of course, it's always from their own people. And uh, so, those sorts of things absolutely stand out. And um, uh, the overall. It's it's the the orchestration. Uh, each one of the things in its in and of itself is is really objectionable, um, as I said. But putting it all together, where they're literally controlling the, the the climate science and anybody that dares to question to to, uh, to what they're saying, and so uh, those are the things that really bother me. And just to give you a quick comment on this, Professor Deming. Um, here's, an, here's a comment that he wrote back in, uh, in um, to his experience. He said, with the publication of my article in Science in 1995, I gained significant credibility in the community of scientists working on climate change. They thought I was one of them, someone who would pervert science in the service of social and political causes. So one of them let his guard down. A major person working in the area of climate change and global warming sent me an astonishing email that said, we must get rid of the medieval warm period. Now, when Deming came out with that at the time, there was quite a furor about it. But now, in the light of the, these exposures, we see that Deming was absolutely right in, in what he was claiming. And, of course, the person that uh, sent him that email was Jonathan Overpeck. And Overpeck's emails are all over those files. And, of course, what they're talking about is the problem they had, James, that they kept saying, oh, no, the 20th century and the latter part of it is the warmest ever. And, of course, skeptics like myself and Richard Lindzen and Patrick Michaels were saying, no, hang on a minute. It was warmer a thousand years ago when the Vikings were in Iceland and Greenland. And, um, and of course, that's why they decided that they'd have to get rid of the medieval warm period. And they achieved that with the hockey stick. In other words, that they completely rewrote the history. And um, you, you can see uh, how they've done this, not only with that particular record, um, but with, um, with the historic records as well, the actual temperature records. The uh, Hansen and the group, uh, where they've been reducing uh, the older temperatures, making it colder than it was, uh, which then enhances the warming in the, in the, uh, the recent times. So the manipulation of records on this level is, is you have to think it's, it's got to be criminal somewhere. 
Certainly a very sobering and sober message about the climate gate scientists from Dr. Ball there. So what does the other side have to say about this issue? Ed Begley Jr. is all about living green and cutting his carbon footprint. Does this change things at all? These emails. The star of Living With Ed joins me now. Ed Begley, welcome to the show. Good to see you, sir. Stuart, thanks for having me on. You heard this. There seems to be some discussion amongst the climate community that uh, maybe the evidence isn't there. They're split. They're divided. Do you ever think that maybe you're wrong about global warming? I, I think the science is very clear in global warming. What these statements are, we'll go down the path and see what happens in peer-reviewed studies. Those are the key words here, Stuart, uh, peer-reviewed studies. If these scientists have done something wrong, it will be found out and their peers will determine it. I don't think uh, geologists should uh, write papers about being an actor or a newscaster, nor should... Uh, uh, don't get your information from me, folks, or any newscaster. Get it from people with PHEF, the name peer-reviewed studies are the key words. And if it comes out in peer-reviewed studies that there are some... Uh, cooking the books, that will come out. Well, you know, Senator Inhofe has a list of 700 climate scientists who say this global warming, they've got problems with the whole theory of global warming. I put it to you. They're not, they're not the, 700 the, climate scientists. There's weathermen and other people in there. There are some climate scientists. The science is not in. The, it is it's in. Not, no. Stuart, quit saying that. No, the debate is, is so not in. over, sir. Peer-reviewed studies. Go to Science Magazine, folks, Nature Magazine. Go to somebody you trust. National Geographics. Don't get it from you or me. Don't get it from Rush Limbaugh no. or Glenn no, Beck. No, no. Scientists. People with PhD okay, right, okay. weathermen, not right, weathermen, okay. listen science, to this. climate. Listen to this. I had a Princeton professor on my program. What's his, what, is he, what does he have his degree in? Look, he's a physicist. Okay, a physicist? He's a Princeton professor. I want people who are who PhDs says, in climate science. Who's questioned the, the climate science, scientist isn't going to tell you the difference between a quark and a boson. He's not going to tell you so that. So there's no question, question whatsoever. Absolutely, no question in your mind. You always you can be you can be skeptical. Right. The debate is skeptical, over. but not the, denial. The, you the guys are over. The debate is over on on uh, global warming. The debate is very clear. It's out there in the scientific community. Community read peer-reviewed studies. Well, what do the leaked emails have to say about the peer review process? Well, to quote Phil Jones, the head of the Climate Research Unit, quote. I can't see either of these papers being in the next IPCC report. Kay and I will keep them out somehow, even if we have to redefine what the peer review literature is. End quote. Or how about this email from Michael Mann, the author of the now infamous hockey stick graph? Quote, how to deal with this is unclear since there are a number of individuals with bona fide scientific credentials who could be used by an unscrupulous editor to ensure that anti-greenhouse science can get through the peer review process. End quote. So again, the peer review process is only as trustworthy as the clique that is involved in running it. And when you have a very small group of professors in the world who are capable of reviewing one another's work on such very important issues, but very arcane issues, it's almost inevitable that a clique herd mentality will develop. People who are interested in finding out more about that should read about the Wegman Report, which talked about how basically this small clique were reviewing one another's papers. Very interesting indeed. But at any rate, how has the media really picked up or circulated this story? Well, on the 22nd of November, James Dellingpole of The Telegraph put together a very good compendium of some of the early reporting on this subject. It's under the title Climategate, 
how the MSM reported the greatest scandal in modern science. Quote, Here's what the Times has had to say on the subject. Emails allegedly written by some of the world's leading climate scientists have been stolen by hackers and published on websites run by climate change skeptics. The skeptics claim that the emails are evidence that scientists manipulated data in order to strengthen their argument that human activities were causing global warming. Yep, definitely an improvement on their earlier non-existent coverage, but not exactly pointing up the scandalousness of this scandal. And the Independent? Yep, nada. And here's how the New York Times, aka Pravda, reported it. Hundreds of private email messages and documents hacked from a computer server at a British university are causing a stir among global warming skeptics, who say they show that climate scientists conspired to overstate the case for a human influence on climate change. Yep, that's right. It has only apparently caused a stir among skeptics. Everyone else can rest easy. Nothing to see here. And here's how The Guardian has reported it. Hundreds of private emails and documents allegedly exchanged between some of the world's leading climate scientists during the past 13 years have been stolen by hackers and leaked online, it emerged today. The computer files were apparently accessed earlier this week from servers at the University of East Anglia's Climate Research Unit, a world-renowned center focused on the study of natural and anthropogenic climate change. Oh, I get it. It's just a routine data theft story, not a scandal and a chance to remind us of the CRU's integrity and respectability. And, see below, to get in a snarky, let's have a dig at the deniers quote from Greenpeace. A spokesman for Greenpeace said, If you looked through any organization's emails from the last 10 years, you'd find something that would raise a few eyebrows. Contrary to what the skeptics claim, the Royal Society the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, NASA, and the world's leading atmospheric science scientists are not the agents of a clandestine global movement against the truth. This stuff might drive some web traffic, but so does David Icke. Here's the Washington Post. Hackers broke into the electronic files of one of the world's foremost climate research centers this week and posted an array of emails in which prominent scientists engaged in a blunt discussion of global warming research and disparaged climate change skeptics. The skeptics have seized upon emails stolen from the Climate Research Unit of the University of East Anglia in Britain as evidence that scientific data have been rigged to make it appear as if humans are causing global warming. The researchers, however, say the emails have been taken out of context and merely reflect an honest exchange of ideas. Ah, so what the story is really about is skeptics causing trouble. Note how as high as the second paragraph, the researchers are allowed by the reporter to get in their insta-rebuttal, lest we get the impression that the scandal in any way reflects badly on them. Here is the BBC. Emails reportedly from the University of East Anglia's Climactic Research Unit, CRU, including personal exchanges, appeared on the internet on Thursday. A university spokesman confirmed the email system had been hacked and that information was taken and published without permission. An investigation was underway, and the police had been informed, he added. Ah, yes, another routine data theft story, so dully reported. The police had been informed, he added that you can't even be bothered to reach the end to find out what information was stolen. Meanwhile, the ClimateGate scandal continues to set the blogosphere ablaze. End quote. 
Well, Dellingpole has certainly hit the nail on the head in terms of covering the ways in which the MSM was not covering this story for as long as humanly possible, and then skewing it when they did cover it. But perhaps he's missing the point that there were really underlying reasons for some of these reporters to be downplaying the significance of this scandal. And that's because a lot of the reporters who apparently were reporting on this story were actually involved in this story and in these emails. Now, here's a few indications of that. One of them comes from Infowars.net, November 24th, 2009. BBC Climate Correspondent was forwarded CRU emails five weeks before they were made public. A BBC weather presenter who was discussed by scientists in the ClimateGate emails says he was forwarded the material more than five weeks before it was made public on the internet. Paul Hudson, a weather presenter and climate correspondent for the BBC, notes on his blog, I was forwarded the chain of emails on the 12th of October. Hudson says he saw the exact emails that were either hacked or leaked from the Climate Research Unit at East Anglia University placed on the internet last week. The emails released on the internet as a result of CRU being hacked into are identical to the ones I was forwarded and read at the time, and so, as far as I can see, they are authentic, Hudson notes. End quote. Again, it's pretty staggering that a reporter had those emails and was sitting on them for weeks and weeks before they were leaked online. That in itself is a very telling story and one that needs to be investigated in all of the many investigations that need to be done into this issue. Here's another thing that needs to be investigated. From the Green Hell blog at greenhellblog.com, November 24th, 2009. New York Times reporter whitewashes climate gate story he is part of. Quote, Below is a text of the letter sent to Clark Hoyt, the public editor, ombudsman, for the New York Times. Mr. Hoyt, shouldn't Andrew Revkin have recused himself from his November 21st front-page article, Hacked Email is New Fodder for Climate Dispute? First, as Revkin briefly acknowledges in the article, he is part of the story. Isn't it a breach of journalistic ethics for a reporter to report on a story of which he is part? Moreover, his story, to a great extent, defended his sources. It's one thing to rely on sources. It is quite another to defend them at the expense of unbiased and accurate reporting about them. This is not an innocent faux pas either. Revkin tried to whitewash the significance of the story, including distracting readers away from the embarrassing, incriminating contents of the files, and, instead, focusing them on the alleged hacking Perhaps a journalist more interested in unbiased reporting and less interested in defending his personal relationships with the subjects in the emails and his personal pro-climate alarmist agenda would have investigated and caught this. But then, Andrew Revkin was the wrong man for the job. Steve Malloy, publisher, JunkScience.com End quote. So once again, we see a controlled corporate journalist reporting on a story of which he is a part, as if that was not actually problematic to his reporting on that story. Well, of course, we know otherwise and can see quite transparently through such a ploy, so it's kind of amazing that he'd even try to pull that, but there you go. But it's interesting to see the way things are playing out as it still continues to develop and as this story still is going forward. 
we can see there are things happening that perhaps would have been a bit unexpected a week or two ago. For example, we have arch global warming advocate George Monbiot over at The Guardian releasing a rather a surprising article on the 25th of November 2009, pretending the climate email leak isn't a crisis won't make it go away. Climate skeptics have lied, obscured, and cheated for years. That's why we climate rationalists must uphold the highest standards of science. So you can go and read that article for yourself. But basically, he, although of course, sticks by the IPCC report and everything that's ever been said about man-made global warming, but he admits at least that these scientists were reprehensible in what they were doing and that they really need to apologize for what has happened and sort things out by releasing their data. Well, that's a rather whirlwind tour of some of the reporting and some of the issues that are going on at the moment. And all of those things need to be fleshed out in greater detail, including, of course, the very fundamental premise of the peer review system, whereby a small clique of scientists can direct a d discipline by simply banding together, colluding, and yes, conspiring to keep others out of the peer review literature. And the issue of the data itself, data that's used to make models, which are then used to inform public policy, which in turn costs taxpayers millions, billions, and eventually trillions of dollars. We're talking about putting the economy of the world on the line for a science that is based on graphs and charts and models, which are itself based on data, which is according to the UK Met Office, secret information that cannot be released to the public. Are we going to stand for that? And what does that say about the science that they are basing this on? Well, there are, as I say, many issues that need to be explored. But the most important for you and I is, of course, the lack of coverage of this story and its full magnitude in the majority of the controlled corporate and foundation-funded media. Now, as you and I well know, we cannot rely on the media to do the reporting for us. In this day and age, with the tools and resources we have, we have to become the media and get this message out to the people, especially at this key juncture right before the Copenhagen Treaty is about to be signed. We can do something truly and miraculous to stop this process in its tracks. But we have to work quickly, and we have to take this very seriously. Dot, 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 don't leave me hanging, James. Did we work quickly? Did, did we achieve the breaking of the dam and the opening of the floodgates and the overturning of the climate change narrative? Well, maybe not. But the Copenhagen Treaty was not signed as expected in 2009. It did not eventuate in the Global Governance Treaty um, or the even the beginnings of uh, the Global Governance Beast in the way that I think the UN clique had been salivating about before that conference. There were politics at play in that conference and other things going on besides, but Climategate was some part of it. And although, yes, there was a lot of mainstream media silence on the issue, as much as they could get away with, there was, I think, 
At this point, at least for me personally, covering this in 2009, this was one of those key points where I saw the beginning of the divergence. There was something happening online and lots of people were talking about it and learning about it and falling down this rabbit hole that was not really being talked about and covered in in the mainstream old dinosaur television news universe. And this is where you start to see that divergence that has led us to the point today where, uh, of course, everyone gets their information online and who watches TV news anymore? But there you go. This was, I think, part of that fork along the path. And as I say, there's so much more about this story. Again, for all of the coverage of it as it was developing, the Climategate story and some of my early videos and articles about it, you will find that on the 2009 Data Archive USB available from newworldnextweek.com. All of that will be on there. With the usual caveat, this video that you just watched is a new video that Brock West, video editor extraordinaire, has just created um, for this flashback episode. So it, it was not on the 2009 data archive. It will be on the 2022 data archive. <laughs> but that's another story. But yes, all this report, the audio, the, the, the videos I was doing at the time, the articles are all there. And I really do think this is an important issue to revisit as we get further and further into this scam. And unfortunately, events like these, important events that really revealed something and really could be used to poke holes in the narrative for uh, the well-meaning believers in that narrative out there, are, are swept under the rug, are forgotten, even by people involved in this, which is much to our detriment. So, your homework, if you are interested in this subject, rather than going to Google and typing ClimateGate in, hey, if you feel inclined, you can do so and you can read the debunkings of it. But I would invite you to also type ClimateGate into the search bar on CorbettReport.com and you will find all of the follow-up videos and articles and things that I wrote about ClimateGate over the year, uh, over the years, including ClimateGate is still the issue and ClimateGate rebunked. Um, there was ClimateGate 2.0 and even a ClimateGate 3.0. Did you know? Maybe you did not. Um, but that's only because you weren't paying enough attention to the Corbett Report. It is all there in my archives, various years, not just 2009. So there's a lot more information on the subject and there are skeptical debunker points that will be raised about, oh, well, ClimateGate, actually, this wasn't a big deal because of this and this and this whitewash and this cover up and blah, blah, blah. And they will always leave out su such things as the literal, the crimatologists, as I call them, the the the, uh, the UEA, U University of East Anglia researchers and others who um, the, the information office and the UK government actually said, well, actually, it was illegal for them to hold back this information, but they, they did so anyway. But oops, you know, statute of limitations, we can't prosecute anything. So nothing will come of it, right? Well, at any rate, all of that information is there and is right there on corporatereport.com. So I hope people will take advantage of that. And as I say, rest in peace, Dr. Tim Ball, uh, who passed away just recently. I will have a, a podcast episode in the next few days just revisiting some of our conversations with Dr. Ball and the things that we learned from him over the years. Uh, another giant has fallen to the wayside. Let us pick up the torch and carry it further. Um, having said that, that's going to do it for this week weekend's flashback. I hope you got something out of it, and I'm looking forward to talking to you again very shortly. James Corbett, CorbettReport.com.